When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her, and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these thirty days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, that we're able to open it and read it and learn. Would you give us understanding through your spirit that we might see and behold more of your glory, that we would worship you more. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I've titled this sermon, The Defining Moment. The Defining Moment. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus is a Christian hymn originating from India. The lyrics are based on the last words of a man from a region called Assam. About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. And as a result of this, many missionaries came to northeast India to spread the good news, to spread the gospel. And this region in India, known as Assam, was comprised of hundreds of tribes who were primitive and aggressive headhunters. It was in this context that a Welsh missionary who had endured severe persecution finally saw his first converts in a village there. A husband and wife and their two children professed faith in Christ and they began to proclaim the gospel around the village. The village chief became angry 
and decided to make an example out of the husband. He arrested the family and called all the villagers around. He then demanded that the father renounce Christ or see his children die. He responded by saying, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The chief then ordered his archers to arrow down his two children. As both boys lay twitching on the floor, the chief asked him, Will you deny your faith? You have lost both your children. You will also lose your wife. But the man replied, Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The chief became furious and ordered his wife to be arrowed down as well. Then the chief said, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, he said, The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And he was shot dead and followed his family into glory. But not long after, the chief who had ordered the killings wondered about their faith and why this man, his wife, and two children would die for a man who lived in a faraway country on another continent some 2,000 years ago. And he ended up, by God's grace, professing Christ along with many other of the villagers. So this is not a song about free will or man deciding when it comes to salvation. This is a song about deciding to follow Christ no matter what the cost. This song is about the lay down your life commitment of a believer. This song was put together during this defining moment in this father's and husband's life. But we have to see that this defining moment in this man's life was also was also God's solution for spreading the gospel in this previously unwelcomed area. We don't always have life-threatening moments like that, but we do have to make decisions all day, every day. And with every temptation and every action and every reaction, we have a choice to make. That moment when, as a student, you have to decide, am I going to cheat on this test? Or as a taxpayer, am I going to cheat on my tax returns? Or even for husbands, am I going to cheat on my wife? Or for wives, am I going to cheat on my husband? Or that moment when a parent has to decide, am I going to burst out in anger at my children for what they've done? Or whether to or not step in when our children are involved in an unhealthy relationship. There's plenty of decisions we have to make every single day of our lives, and each of those decisions matter. So we're always living at this crossroads where we have to make decisions. And it might not be the defining moment, but it is a defining moment in your life that shapes who you are and reveals who you are. And we will see this with Esther in chapter 4. But as with every moment in time, there is never a moment that God is not actively working out his plan. God is always working out his plan. In chapter 1, there was a party marathon that showed off the king's wealth and power but it ended with Queen Vashti being removed from her position and from the presence of the king forever. In chapter 2, it started with a search for the next queen and ended with Esther winning the king's favor and becoming the queen of Persia, and also Mordecai saving the king's life and his good deed being recorded down. Chapter 3 started with Haman being promoted and Mordecai refusing to bow to him and ended with a crisis because of a death warrant that was out to destroy all the Jews. There's confusion in the city with seemingly no resolution. 
But we saw how things were beginning to fall into place as God presents an opportunity for victory, even though things look terrible. Esther was not mentioned in chapter 3, and now her role in God's providence and her place in God's plan will become undeniably apparent. And even despite her unwillingness, in the face of this defining moment, God will still use her. God will still use her as part of his plan. So in this section, in chapter 4, we learn of Mordecai and Esther's response to Haman's plot to completely annihilate the Jews so that we would know that despite our own lack of commitment to God, he will still accomplish his plan and even use us as part of his plan. So in verses 1 through 8, let's look at Mordecai's plan. Mordecai's plan. Haman has just sent an official irrevocable decree to all of the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of the Jews, both young and old, women women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Now Mordecai, who refuses to bow to Haman because of their past family history, finds out about this decree, which really came about because of his own actions. He has to decide what he's going to do. So what is his reaction to all of this? Verse 1 says he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. Why do you put on sackcloth and ashes? Because you're mourning. And why are you mourning? What are you mourning? Usually because someone's dead. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning for the dead. And we see this with the example and testimony of David in Scripture with the death of Saul, the death of Abner, the death of Amnon, and other places. Mourning was a sign. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning for the dead. So we have to ask, who died? Has anybody died yet? Why is Mordecai mourning like this? Because he's assuming that all the Jews, including himself, are going to die. Mordecai, in other words, is hopeless. This demonstrates the human impossibility of deliverance. It's impossible for man to turn this around. So Mordecai and the Jews find themselves in a seemingly hopeless state. Their annihilation was impending. Their enemies were drinking and their neighbors were gossiping. So you would think that they would turn to God. Is that what is happening? Of course, right? There's sackcloth and ashes, fasting, weeping, wailing. But we shouldn't be too quick to conclude that. Why? Verse 1 continues and says, He went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Mordecai is using a public act of mourning and a near breach of the king's gate, which was an offense punishable by death, to try to get Esther's attention. And it works. His mourning allows Esther to become aware of the threat to the Jews. Look at verse 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her. I think Mordecai's mourning was both genuine and intentionally planned. Interestingly, the words of the text even suggest that. The actual words of the text are the standard Hebrew words for the tearing of clothes and the wailing of a person who is truly in mourning. But also, 
both the grammar of the text and the actions described by the text suggest that Mordecai controlled the timing of his outward expression of grief in order to achieve certain ends. How do we know that? I'm going to get into a little bit of grammar briefly. In Hebrew, there's what is called avav connective and avav consecutive. And the author joins the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of chapter 3, verse 15, by means of avav connective rather than avav consecutive. What does that mean? Meaning that this allows for the possibility of any number of events that have happened between the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4. This implies that Mordecai's actions do not follow immediately on the heels of the events of chapter 3, verse 15, because above consecutive construction was not used, which would clue you in that this was the very next thing that happened. So this means that Mordecai does not immediately tear his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and wail loudly and bitterly upon learning of the decree. Furthermore, between Mordecai becoming initially aware of the decree and the death warrant and his actions in verse 1, he takes some period of time to discover the detailed sequence of events. If you look at verse 7, it mentions all that had happened to him, literally all that had been done. And that leads to the current situation, which we'll read about in verses 7 and 8. And that also would have taken some time. Also, nowhere does it point to any private mourning on the part of Mordecai. Mordecai's wailing takes place in the open, in the midst of the capital city of Susa, and there's no mention of Mordecai sending any private message to Esther as he had done in the past. In Esther chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it says there, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. In chapter 2, verse 22, when the plot to kill King Ahasuerus became known to Mordecai, it says, he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. For whatever reason, they don't have the same level of communication that they had prior. So Mordecai's expression of mourning, therefore, is a sign of both personal and public mourning, with emphasis on the public. His actions seem calculated to secure the greatest impact on Esther, not merely to express his own personal grief or even to make Esther aware of the facts. As we'll see, it leads to her defining moment. Once Mordecai achieves his goals, he quickly returns to sitting as he did before at the king's gate in chapter 5, verse 9, rather than continuing to express his mourning. His actions are calculated, not spontaneous. He undoubtedly feels grief and extreme anguish over the entire situation. Yet, he appears to be utilizing the situation to try to gain the greatest advantage. So do the actions of Mordecai in particular and, the, and of the Jews in general say anything concerning their spiritual attitudes? Do their actions reflect some level of spirituality or at least a recognition of the need to rely on God in a time of crisis? The actions of tearing one's clothes and of wailing are not necessarily indicators in Scripture of being spiritual. For those actions to be regarded as such, this is important, the context in which they occur must show them to be so. And it's the same with wearing sackcloth and ashes. In Scripture, when sackcloth and ashes denote an act of humbling by individuals or the turning of those individuals to God, 
there's direct indicators in the text that specify that those individuals who are wearing sackcloth and ashes are doing that, are turning to God. The wearing of sackcloth and ashes, however, does not always imply a humbling of oneself or a turning to God. It could just simply be an outward expression of a deep inward grief that someone is feeling. And beyond that, there's other examples in Scripture in which the wearing of sackcloth and ashes is anything but an indicator of spirituality. 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 30, and 2 Kings chapter 6. Therefore, because there is no direct scriptural statement regarding the spiritual element in combination with the presence of this sackcloth and ashes, we should not assume that either Mordecai or the Jews are engaged in spiritual acts before God. Nevertheless, we do see at the end of verse 3 that the Jews were fasting, weeping, and wailing, which parallels what the Lord declares through the prophet Joel of what wayward Israel should do in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. And I bring this up because some have used this verse to argue here that the Jews are actually turning towards God because the exact same three words are used in that passage as well. It says in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, Return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. The exact same three words are used there. Their actions are the right actions, but the question remains, are their hearts, are their lives right with God? There is no mention in the story of Esther of the people in regard to their hearts turning towards God. The Lord, through the prophet Joel, in the very next verse, even says, and rend your heart and not your garments. The Lord demands not merely torn garments, but rather torn or broken hearts that look to him. And also in the book of Esther, the Jews tear their garments, but they do not repent. They do not turn towards God. They give no indication of a desire to rely on God for their deliverance. And Mordecai gives no indication that he is repentant for his actions of not bowing before Haman. And also, it's important to point out that something's missing. Prayer is missing, even though prayer usually accompanies fasting. So Mordecai and the Jews are genuinely mourning, and Mordecai is also making a public display around the king's gate, wearing sackcloth and ashes to gain the attention of Esther. She becomes aware and says in verse 4, that she, it says that she writhed in great anguish. She's deeply distressed because she heard that Mordecai was distressed. And note at this point that Esther still doesn't know about Haman's plot. She doesn't know about it yet. And this tells us that there's a significant separation and seclusion of court life with what's going on on the outside. And we see that Mordecai and Esther have to communicate through other people. She's genuinely concerned for Mordecai, and so it says, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. She doesn't ask about why he is mourning. Rather, she probably doesn't want something to happen to him for wearing sackcloth near the king's gate. And also, it just says that Mordecai did not accept the clothes. He didn't send a message back about why he was mourning. I think this is calculated on Mordecai's part and certainly, he knows Esther the best. He raised and cared for her as his own daughter. This causes Esther to start to take more direct action. So Esther in verse 5, 
summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this, what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. And up to this point, Esther has been mostly passive. We've seen this with the king, with the servants, with the eunuchs, and even with Mordecai. Mordecai was always instructing her, always commanding her, telling her what to do. But now she begins to take action. Verse 5, she summoned, she ordered. Verse 10, she ordered. Verse 16, she gave orders. Verse 17, she commanded. So what does Mordecai do? In verse 7, it says, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Mordecai chooses to trust this eunuch named Hathak and risks placing his life in further danger by revealing his possession of certain confidential information. How did he even get that information? How did he, it doesn't say, it doesn't tell us. He also risks both Esther's position as queen and her life by exposing her as being a member of the Jewish people, a people under a warrant of death. Mordecai gives three crucial pieces of information to Hathak that he expects him to relay to Esther. First, the information regarding his own situation, what's happening with him. Second, the secret details regarding the formation of this death warrant. And third, a copy of the death warrant itself. He reveals all that had happened to him, that is, his refusal to bow before Haman, and then resulting that from a subsequent decree that resulted. The secret details revealing the exact amount of money that was arranged for the destruction of the Jews that happened in a conversation between only the king and Haman, and the copy of the death warrant, which was the official document that was handed out and distributed throughout Susa. So Mordecai communicates to Esther what he believes to be overwhelming, irrefutable evidence. Personal, what happened to him. Private, this conversation that gives the exact amount of money. And public, through this distribution of this letter to all the people in, the, in Susa. And so this evidence is meant to call Esther to act. This is Mordecai's morning and plan to get Esther's attention in order to order her to go to the king and implore his favor and to plead with him for her people how will esther respond to all of this information we'll look at next verses 9 through 17 esther's reluctance esther's reluctance verse 9 reads hathak came back and related mordecai's words to esther then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Esther responds, not with concern for Mordecai or her people, but with concern for herself she responds with reluctance by mentioning legal and personal excuses as justification for not doing what mordecai ordered which is to approach the king on behalf of her people 
unlike Moses and Gideon and Saul and Jeremiah, just to name a few, who demonstrated hesitancy because of feelings of personal unworthiness, here Esther is simply concerned for her personal safety. There's nothing heroic about Esther's statements in verse, seven, verse 11. She expresses rational and logical fears, fears which she will have to suppress because she realizes she has no other alternative but to do so. Her reply to Mordecai is to essentially allow her to be excused from this burden of being a representative on behalf of her people, the Jews. Esther doesn't just use a legal excuse, saying that anyone who comes before the king not summoned could be put to death unless he extends his golden scepter. But she also uses a personal excuse. What does Esther say at the end of verse 11? It says, I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. What is Esther implying? King Ahasuerus has a new woman. He's a womanizer, and it's unlikely that he spent those 30 days sleeping alone. She might be his queen, but she's no longer his lady. The phrase to come to the king carries sexual connotations. And at this point, they have been married for at least five years based upon the time references given in chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 7. And it appears that Esther has fallen out of the king's favor. In verse 12, Esther's words were relayed to Mordecai, and she is basically saying to him, it's also impossible from my end too. No hope. So Mordecai sends a stronger message back to Esther this time. It's almost as if he's, he's threatening her. But whether Mordecai understands and believes what he's saying or whether he's just saying it to convince and persuade her, his words speak truth. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai tells Esther that she will die. But there's hope if she doesn't remain silent. He also says that relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and tells her, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, a divine promise is given through Abraham to the Jews. This divine promise of protection for Israel and judgment for her enemies may have provided the background for Mordecai's statement. But Mordecai's statement doesn't match with any of his actions previously. Ironically, his words used to threaten Esther carries with it the promises of God. And it also reveals the providence of God. And so even though God remains hidden, he is not absent, but is actively working behind the scenes. Going to the king was obviously dangerous, but staying away was just as dangerous for Esther. Her own life is in danger, and the Jews will be saved with or without her. But at the same time, her position as queen matters. This is a picture of God's divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. Mordecai does not mean that if Esther does not do something, then God will. 
It's not a choice between Esther delivering the Jews and God delivering them. Rather, he means that deliverance for the Jews will occur somehow, whether through Esther's actions or some other means. Esther cannot keep God out of his people's story because Esther is a part of God's story. This is God's divine providence and plan. And so this very statement from Mordecai, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this, speaks of the providence of God and brings before Esther all of the previous circumstances of her life that led to her becoming the queen of Persia and how that may have been just for this moment when she can intercede for her people. This is a defining moment in Esther's life. How will she respond? Look at verses 15 through 17. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, my maidens, also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Esther commands for three days of fasting. And again, we see here no mention of prayer. It's a man-centered fast. Look at verse 16. Fast for me. And she also agrees to go in to see the king. So is she now exhibiting great courage and resolve? Not quite. She says in verse 16, and thus I will go into the king. And the next two phrases are telling. Esther adds, which is not according to the law. She has already made mention of the law earlier, so there really doesn't appear to be any reason to bring it up again, but perhaps to remind Mordecai of what he is asking her to do. She's bringing up the law again to throw it back into Mordecai's face. Beyond that, she adds in the next phrase, and if I perish, I perish. This is a despairing expression of resignation to the inevitable. This is not noble. This is desperate. The author uses the perfect verb tense form rather than the imperfect verb tense form for perish here, which indicates a completed action, a completed action or state of affairs rather than an incompleted one. So she's basically saying it's as if she has already accepted death. Esther realizes that she has no viable option but to do what Mordecai has ordered her to do. His plan offers the only hope of changing their future. Yet even that plan holds no guarantees of success, since the king has no power to change this irrevocable edict that has been decreed against the Jews. Furthermore, the king may side with Haman rather than Esther, or the king may have even lost all interest in Esther altogether and not care whether she or her people live or die we see Esther's reluctance to Mordecai's plan and their lack of commitment to God. Mordecai did not turn to God personally for help in verses 7 or 8. He did not instruct Esther to turn to God for help in verses 13 or 14. The fast in the beginning is done with no prayer. The fast at the end is done for Esther rather than seeking dependence and looking to God in prayer for deliverance. 
God and prayer are closely connected. Prayer is our lifeline to God. So their lack of commitment to God is evident, yet there are glimpses of hope. Esther has trustworthy maidens and eunuchs who are willing to help her. Esther has established indirect communication with Mordecai, and she is now in the know like Mordecai and her people as a whole. Mordecai is able to get inside and confidential information as well as a copy of the edict. There's a possibility of the king making an exception by holding out his golden scepter. There's hope in the promise of God as indicated by Mordecai's response to Esther. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. There's also hope in the providence of God as shown in Mordecai's statement to Esther. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. God's light of hope is continually flickering. He has not left his people. He has not forsaken his people despite their lack of commitment to him. So does this not provide us with a greater understanding and greater appreciation for our God? These are his people, and yet their reliance upon him is difficult to identify. And could that not be said of all of us sometimes? Nevertheless, in his providence, he is using their lack of commitment to him to accomplish his very plan. And he's even using them as part of his plan. And likewise, he's doing the same in each one of our lives as well. So let me offer you some peace. God knows you are not perfect. Let me give you some encouragement. God does not expect you to be perfect. Let me provide you some comfort. God knows you will fall short. He knows you will mess up. He knows you will sin. Let me offer you some hope. God knows what you need, when you need it, how you need it, where you need it, and why you need it. And God doesn't just know your needs. He is the source, and he supplies what you need. Turn to him for all things. Look to his word for all things. Depend upon him in prayer for all things. And if you're not a Christian, God's word says that you're a great sinner who has sinned against the holy God, that you are not good and you lack righteousness. And so you are separated from God and unable to come to God. But God, through his son Jesus Christ, has provided what you are lacking. He has provided what you're lacking, which is his perfect righteousness and forgiveness of sins, and has taken away what condemns you, which is God's wrath and his eternal punishment for your sins by taking your place and laying down his life as your substitute and on the third day, raising from the grave victorious over sin and death because of your justification. If you repent and believe in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you do that, you will be saved. He is your only hope in life and in death. Turn to him alone in faith for salvation and eternal life. We've seen that there's always hope with God. That God always has a plan. And in God's providence, he uses people to accomplish his plans. What does that mean 
for us, what does that mean for you? It means you are part of God's plan. Don't forget that. You are part of God's plan, and God is accomplishing his perfect plan through us, through you, through each one of your lives. So when life-threatening illness strikes, or when we're faced with the choice between compromise and losing our jobs, or when someone we love abandons us, or whatever it might be, do we live out the truth that we proclaim? Do we remind ourselves that God is in control of all things, and his promise to us is that he works together all things to his glory and for our good? These are defining moments that both uncover and shape who we are. Without them, without them, we might continue to persist in our comfortably compromised ways. Without them, we might continue to be indifferent towards God. Without them, we wouldn't be able to demonstrate our trust in God. We wouldn't be able to exercise our faith and obedience in Him. We wouldn't be able to show the world Christ-like attitudes and actions that not only repel people, but more importantly, attracts people to Christ. In other words, in the midst of the storm, everyone will see where we are seeking refuge. They will know God is sovereign over all things and his people are one of the means that he uses to bring that about and therefore we as his people have a responsibility to seek to live in obedience and in accordance with his will. We are called to be faithful. But even when we aren't, listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11-13. through 13. It says, It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Esther's actions could be taken as brave and courageous, and definitely it would require some of that. But more so than being brave and courageous, her actions stem from an unwillingness and realization that she had no other choice. She was and her people were in a hopeless situation. This serves not to highlight Esther, but rather to exalt God, who is active and working behind the scenes. God is the main character in the story of Esther for the very reason that he's hidden in it. And he's using his people to accomplish his plans despite their lack of commitment to him. But Christian, please do not hear this and think that this is a license to sin, that this is a license to not be committed to God because God has saved me. That's not what it is. That's not what it says. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love and obedience to his word. Love for God and obedience are inseparable. And God shows grace 
and God shows grace. This isn't justification to sin. A heart that loves and obeys God is motivated not to sin. A heart that loves and obeys God is motivated not to sin. And because of the Spirit's presence and power to fight against sin, and because you are a new creation to pursue righteousness. So this is not, it's okay to sin and not be committed to God. But this is the reality that we are broken, fallen, imperfect creatures who need to be dependent upon a holy, sovereign creator God who shows grace and mercy and works through and with the actions of his people. God placed Esther in that era of history, in that city in Persia, in that bedroom of the king, so that when the moment comes, he can fulfill his promise and plan through her. Esther comes to this defining moment through her past decisions, whether they were right or wrong. The decision she now faces will play a role in defining her future and shaping the destiny of her people as well. Mordecai is desperate, and he goes to these great lengths to get Esther's attention. Esther is reluctant and also desperate per her declaration, if I perish, I perish. The situation seems hopeless for the Jews. Nevertheless, God has held some things in tension. God has inserted himself without doing so explicitly, and this is where things will start to get interesting, very interesting, and even humorous and fun and ironic. He is continuing to unfold an opportunity for victory. Mordecai's plan and Esther's reluctance are really a part of God's plan. And this defining moment in Esther's life is also a part of God's solution. Part of God's solution. God's purposes are greater than mine or yours. And perhaps you have come to your present situation for such a time as this. Regardless of what that is and what that looks like or what that might be, as those who belong to Jesus Christ We have hope and confidence. We have hope and confidence in Christ. I'll close with these song lyrics by the Gettys. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. O oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. O oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess. Christ, our hope in life and death. It's amazing that God works through our failures, our sins, our lack of faithfulness to him, our lack of commitment to him. Don't forget that we're still a part of God's plan. He will never leave us. In fact, he's using us as part of his perfect plan to accomplish his perfect ends. So be thankful, rejoice in Christ for the forgiveness of sins that we receive, that we're freed from this bondage of sin, and we're free to live in obedience and righteousness for him. 
and that no matter what, we are His. We are His. Our lack of commitment will not take that away. Christ's love is greater than anything, and nothing can separate us from His perfect love for His children. So seek to be faithful. Seek to be committed to Christ for what He's done. For that very reason, do not take advantage of God's grace. Do not look lightly at your sin. But rather, look to God and what he's done, his mercy and grace. And would that be the cause of your heart's rejoicing and motivation to serve and live for him alone? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Esther that really reminds us how you love your people. You use flawed people to accomplish your perfect will. And even though your name's not mentioned at all in this story, it serves to highlight even more your providence and your sovereignty over all things. That you're the hero of the story. That you work through Mordecai and Esther through their lack of commitment to display your glory and your kindness and your mercy and your grace and your love. Father, we see more of you today and would our hearts be moved to give you greater praise for you alone are worthy. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen.